0: And you can adjust the podium to...
1: I'm a bit shorter. May it please the Court, Anna Moen, on behalf of the United States. The Procurement Act authorizes the President to prescribe policies and directives that he considers necessary... To establish an economical and efficient system for procurement the executive order challenged here was a straightforward exercise of that authority in that it directed executive departments and agencies to contract only with businesses that agreed to comply with certain COVID 19 safety guidelines that use of the president's procurement act authority was consistent with the text of the statute and tradition decades-long tradition among presidents of past administration, courts of appeals, and Congress in repeatedly reenacting the Procurement Act. The district court nonetheless enjoined the executive order, concluding that there was not a close enough nexus here to the statute's goals of economy and efficiency, uh, but the nexus here is, is quite straightforward. The president made a determination uh, based on a once-in-a-century pandemic, a highly transmissible and virulent disease that was causing immediate and acute impacts on the performance of federal contracts, determined that vaccination was the most effective means of stopping transmission and serious illness among federal contract workers from that disease, and determined that that vaccination, in turn, would save the government costs in terms of direct costs of leave, as well as indirect costs in terms of performance delays uh, and lower performance quality
0: on federal contracts. Well, Counsel, a lot of the dispute in this case seems to be on can the statute that's being cited here support the delegation of that authority to the executive. And the cases that have looked at it, the analysis in the decision below, seems to provide some food for thought that perhaps this is, this is a bit of a stretch uh, for the authority of a... Procurement Act to become the power to uh, tell states and and other government contractors uh, uh, the 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 type of restriction that's being placed here on requiring health decisions by their employees.
1: Your Honor, this use of the Procurement Act authority is consistent with the text of the statute, which says Section has it
0: been done before specifically to require. Uh, inoculations for vaccines or, or similar personal medical decisions.
1: Your Honor, I'm not aware of a prior example of this authority being used to require vaccination. That said, there is a seven decades long tradition among past presidents and courts of appeals of using this authority to, uh, in a broad way, to establish policies for contractors that improve the economy and efficiency. Of the performance of those contracts. Well, what, has,
0: what's what's the kind of the the limiting uh, of the authority that's granted here? It it, it seems quite open ended if it can can reach this far without more express uh, uh, authority.
1: You're the the courts of appeals applying this test for decades have recognized that the economy and efficiency test that requires a close nexus to those goals is a meaningful constraint on the president's power, and I think plaintiffs agree with that here. The district court was concerned that if this order is affirmed, it would somehow permit presidents in the future to enact virtually any order that uh, touched on the general health of the contractor workforce. And there's just no basis for concluding that affirming this order here would lead uh, to those orders. I think, importantly, The context for this order was a -a once-in-a-century pandemic, a highly transmissible and virulent disease that was causing immediate Mm -hmm. and acute impacts on the performance of federal contracts. That is far different from any sort of generalized latent health issue that the federal contract workforce might have that could, in some speculative way, eventually affect the performance of federal contracts. So there's just no basis for concluding that affirming this order in this particular context would lead to all of those other orders. And similarly, I think important to note is that you know there have been public uh, there have been health issues in this country uh, for a long time, and we've not seen the president issue these kinds of orders that are targeted to the general health of the contractor workforce, which I think is good evidence that that economy and efficiency test that has been used by courts of appeals across the country for decades as an effective limit, an effective constraint on the president's power.
0: Are you challenging the district court's standing conclusions?
1: Your Honor, we're not challenging the district court's standing conclusion on appeal. Okay. go ahead?
0: One last question, I'll, I'll be quiet. Um, what, if any effect, is the president's declaration that the pandemic's over, does that have on, on this case?
1: Your Honor, this court is considering a judgment that was made in September 2021, the fall of 2021. That uh, policy has been frozen in time. It's been subject to a nationwide injunction uh, since the winter of last year. To the extent this court uh, believes that changed circumstances, the evolution of the disease, and new variants may have undermined a portion of the original rationale for the executive order. Uh, this, could, this court could affirm the executive order in the main uh, and remand to the district court to conduct that analysis in the first instance. Uh, but I would just point out that the CDC has recently confirmed that vaccination is still highly protective against serious illness among federal contract workers. So uh, there's still an economy and efficiency nexus here.
2: Could I follow up on the, um, uh, when well you said conduct that analysis, what what were you referring to if- you said we could affirm on the whole and then remand to the district court. Could you just flesh that out a little bit for me for what you mean?
1: Sure, Your Honor. To the extent that the CDC has recently announced, as my friends on the other side noted in a 28 j letter, uh, that vaccines are no longer as effective against transmission and symptomatic infection Uh, this court could remand for the district court to consider in the first instance whether that might uh, justify a more tailored injunction to the scope of the executive order. Thank you.
3: Counsel, I wanted to ask you about uh, your statement that the executive order was consistent not only with tradition, but also the text of the statute. And I'd like to have you um, comment on Section 121A and whether or not that section limits the uh, President's power to carrying out Subtitle I of Title 40 and policies consistent with that subtitle.
1: Thank you, Your Honor. Section 121A says the President's authorized to prescribe policies and directives that carry out this subtitle, as you mentioned. A provision within that subtitle is Section 1, which is the purpose statement, which says that the purpose of the Procurement Act is to establish an economical and efficient system for procuring and supplying goods and services. So it's fully consistent with uh, sort of standard rules of statutory interpretation to use a purpose uh, or definitional provision to inform the meaning of an operative grant of authority. And that is all that we're asking the court to do here, consistent with what courts of appeals have done for decades. Um, I'd also just add that everyone understood this section 121 in particular uh, to be a grant of authority. To the president, and it would be particularly anomalous to interpret that as somehow limiting or, or cabining the president's authority, given the president has some inherent authority in this well, the area. grant
3: can be limited in scope or broad in scope, can it? That,
1: That—that's correct, Your Honor. And, and we just believe that this is a case where the grant uh, is understood to be broad in scope, because uh, both that text is is quite broad, and then also the inherent authority the president. Uh, already has to manage the affairs of the executive branch. And I would just note that uh, recently uh, some decisions from other courts of appeals have sort of broken with this long seven decades' worth tradition of interpreting this statute. Um, We had an opinion from Judge Grant in the 11th Circuit. I'll just note that um, that opinion was, the statutory interpretation portion of that opinion was only joined by Judge Grant um, but Judge Grant suggested that this Section 121 grant of authority was was more narrow uh, and that it only empowered the president to help agencies carry out their specific listed authorities within the Procurement Act. And we think that interpretation uh, is just inconsistent with, with canons of statutory interpretation, which tell us that longstanding presidential practice, longstanding and inter- Interpretations from courts of appeals are meaningful in thinking about what the text of a statute means, and that particularly Cong- Congress's reenactment uh, of the same exact substantive provisions in the wake of, of that consensus as to the meaning of the statute uh, is, is assumed to carry forward the interpretation. So, so think that there is is no basis for similarly breaking uh, from that trend uh, in the way that 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 Judge Grant did in the recent. Georgia versus a president of the United States opinion.
2: Uh, you, you've, you've described this sort of as a shift in how we interpret the, how courts are interpreting the statute, what's the scope. In your view, And I, I guess I'm having a little trouble understanding what the new standard would be. We've got sort of, as you said, some case law that has established this economic and efficiency sort of standard with this nexus. If the if that is pushed aside, what what sort of limits do you see then on the executive authority under the statute? I don't know if my question is making sense, but I'm trying to figure out if if we if the courts consistently are changing how we view this statute, what is a practical matter will that mean for executive authority?
1: Your Honor, as a practical matter, I think that would mean that every single executive order that Uh, we've seen issued pursuant to this power for the past 70 years would be called into question. So it would call, um, we had an opinion from a state panel uh, in Kentucky that also said that uh, these exercises of authority could only be sort of internal facing, could have no impacts on uh, how federal contractors perform their work, and that would call into question the anti-discrimination orders, that were issued by three different presidents in the 1950s and 60s. It would call into question the price and wage increase orders that were issued by President Carter in the 1970s. It would call into question labor rights and immigration orders that were issued by Presidents Clinton and Bush in the 1990s. And so what,
2: what would the authority then, and I, and I appreciate that, that, that answer, what then would the scope of the authority look like in your view if we were to adopt a variation of what um, Missouri is arguing here. What Can you help me sort of understand then what the Procurement Act would be doing in terms of granting the executive the authority to direct these agencies to, to do what?
1: Uh, your Honor, I, I'm not quite sure, and I think that, that might be a good ans- uh, question for my friends on the other side, but I would I would just point out I understand Missouri's argument here to be a focus on this word system in section 101 of the statute and a suggestion that uh, because a system is, is somehow related to the government's internal operations, the president can only issue orders that, uh, some, that have no outside effect, but only kind of govern the ministerial internal operations involved in contracting. Um, but I don't even think under that reading of the statute that it supports a limitation on the, on the president's authority that my friends on the other side are suggesting. Because think any speaker of ordinary English thinking about the word system and creating an economical and efficient system would think, if I create a rule of decision that says, here's a way that I'm going to find the most economical and efficient contracts to enter into, uh, and my rule is that I'm only going to enter into contracts, for example, with suppliers who have a past history of performing on time or delivering high-quality work. I think anyone would understand that to be establishing an economical and, and efficient system for procurement. So, so, Your Honor, I think under its extreme form, uh, what my friends on the other side would suggest, are suggesting is that this is just a purely ministerial power that doesn't really differ from anything the president already had internal authority to do in terms of managing the executive branch. And I just think that that reading isn't necessarily supported even under their own view of the text, uh, but then also would be extremely problematic insofar as it would conflict with this decades-long tradition among presidents, courts of appeals, and and Congress in reenacting this statute in the wake of that consensus.
0: Well, given the the waning of the emergency from the time, why is it so vital that this uh, preliminary injunction be removed? Uh, you will still go be able to proceed with the litigation that's underway?
1: Your Honor, yes. The the litigation will proceed underway. And there were a number of questions that the district court reserved that it will need to address on remand. Uh, this litigation is extremely important as a general matter to the President and the government because this Procurement Act... There's the, nothing
0: going to stop it. The, the litigation's able to proceed.
1: Yes, the, the litigation is able to proceed. But I think importantly, um, to the extent that there's any sort of question of whether uh, the judgment should change in, in the wake of the evolution of the disease and new variants, uh, that's something that it's been sort of uncertain whether... OMB can even make a determination since it's been subject to this nationwide injunction in Georgia and then also the injunction in this case. So so that is why we would want the preliminary injunction vacated. Uh, and I see I'm entering my rebuttal time. Uh, unless there are any further questions, I'll reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Thank you, Ms. Mullen. Thank you, Your Honor.
0: talent
4: good morning your honors may it please the court Michael Talent representing the state appellees here. Uh, I'm going to start with the big issue before this case, the one uh, discussed, uh, my friend discussed, which is the, whether the Procurement Act authorizes the contractor mandate. The analysis here proceeds on two paths, I think, uh, uh, presaged by what my friend discussed. The first is discussing the meaning of the Procurement Act, which shows that the Procurement Act is really about how the government contracts, not how contractors perform the second part is that close nexus test. And I think, actually, at the end of the day, especially in this case, the analysis of the two kind of overlap a little bit. There's some harmony between the two. But the analysis of both leads to the conclusion that the six and 11th circuits reached, which is that the contractor mandate is not authorized by the Procurement Act. And looming large over this, and something that this court uh, uh, discussed with my friend on the other side, so I, the court is very much aware about this, is a, is a limits, or I guess the lack of limit in the government's reading of the act. Briefly, kind of uh, to summarize, the government says the contractor mandate is authorized by the Procurement Act by stitching together two provisions, section 101 and section 121. Kind of paraphrasing from pages two to three of their opening brief, what the government says is that those provisions taken together empower the president to issue any any policy or directive he believes is necessary to promote economy and efficiency in federal contracts. Well, that's not a principle with a limit, or that's not a, that's not a power with a principled limit to it. And my, To be sure, my friend on the other side says, well, economy and efficiency is a limit, but that's really more of a tautology, especially when added to the fact that the government asks this court to defer to the president's judgment of what constitutes efficiency. So we're really in a situation, I think Chief Judge Smith, you pointed out, Judge Gross, you pointed out, where we're dealing with a case where there's no principle limit to what the government, what the president may do under the Procurement Act something the District Court and the 6th and 11th Circuit noted. Just take the logic of the contractor mandarin, uh, mandate in this case.
3: Counsel, I, I asked uh, uh, your opposing counsel the question about, well, what about the language of Section 121A? And But I think the government's position is, well, the purpose of the statute is included in that language, and therefore there's no contradiction between the uh, limitations in the uh, Section 121 and the broader purpose of the statute? How did you? How do you respond to
4: that? Well, I think what the uh, my friend on the other side said, and I think the 6th and 11th circuits have said in this context, is that Section 101 as a purpose statute is a guide to interpretation. It's not a substantive brand of authority. So in Section 121A, when the statute references the uh, uh, ability for the po- President to issue policies and directives necessary to carry out this subtitle, this subtitle does not encompass that purpose statement. The Georgia, K- uh, Georgia Court, the 11th Circuit, was very clear about this. That's not a grant of substantive authority. Citing this circuit's decision in Independent Meat Packers Association v. Bucks, so I, I think the way the purpose statute works with 121A is it helps inform that second sentence in 121A that uh, the policies and directives cannot be inconsistent with this subtitle. So economy and efficiency, and this is where the 11th Circuit went with this, helps under, helps uh, helps understand whether a particular policy or directive is inconsistent. So whether it's limiting the amount of suppliers or, or, or limiting the number of people who can compete for a bid, for example, that's where 101A comes in, and that's just on the textual side of things. Within the text, it's, and I think it's important to note why the purpose statute in this context specifically cannot be a, a grant of substantive authority. This gets to the limit argument I pointed out. As the district court noted, You know, just kind of looking at the contractor mandate specifically, there's no really limit to what the president can mandate an employer to do. So, the, for example, the government argues that the contractor mandate promotes efficiency because it will prevent people in the workforce from becoming ill, getting sick. They'll stay healthy. Instead, they'll stay healthy. They'll be at work instead of at home sick. Well, the District Court noted, the Sixth and the Eleventh Circuits, I think, also noted this. Under that logic, the president could issue any type of health order he wants. This doesn't and of course, I have a follow-up on that. I feel Feel like we've sort of you know slipped into this parade of horribles
2: um and with without sort of sticking to what this is and i'd like to just kind of engage with you a little bit about this because it, it, it was a pandemic and where it was just different than just getting sick right anytime and i appreciate your point that you know when anybody's absent from work a contract may indeed be slowed down but do you not think that there's enough of the record? I mean, putting aside sort of bigger senses of authority, but this idea that the pandemic meant that entire groups of people had to stay away from a work site whether or not they actually had COVID because of exposure, that we are in a different sort of situation when it comes to absenteeism. Can you address that for me as to why maybe that may not be the slippery slope parade of formals? Um, that you're concerned
4: about? Uh, well, I think uh, I think there's encompassed. I think within uh, uh, that position, I think two arguments. One is uh, something my friend on the other side pointed out, which is, I, and I think this is where you're getting at. The president's never used this to issue a health order before. Uh, I think that's where you're going uh, with that. with yeah, Judge no, Kelly. no, I
2: guess I'm just trying to say, you know, it, it, let's let's give you the point of yes, okay. Just because people get colds and sometimes this but that may not be something that the, the president can um, put into contracts under the Procurement Act because it doesn't sufficiently promote economy and efficiency. But that this idea that we're, we're equating sort of regular sickness and absenteeism based on what we have traditionally known as being, I'm sick, I can't come to work, with a pandemic where we're talking about something highly contagious that basically, Based on the last argument, we're talking about stay-at-home orders and, and, and quarantining, uh, whatever that, that word may mean. And I, and I guess I'm trying, to, I'm trying not to conflate those. I'm trying to see whether you can talk to me about those two separate sorts of situations and not combine them as one, because I just don't see those as the same thing.
4: I understand where you're coming from. I think in this context, if you look at what the Supreme Court said in Alabama Association of Realtors in the OSHA vaccine mandate case, you actually can't separate the two. The underlying power has to be logically consistent and kind uh, uh, with the COVID with the COVID context. So even in the context of COVID 19, even in the context of ensuring people don't get the disease, and I don't think anyone here is saying it's we should we should ignore the fact that there was a pandemic happening. But I think if you look at what the Supreme Court has said, the underlying authority still has to be there. And so the slippery slope argument actually does matter in this context, Your Honor. When the, and the, as the Sixth Circuit said, the government hasn't really grappled with the logical limits, if there are any limits, to what the gov- what it can do under its reading of the Procurement Act. So it can mandate, if we abstract away from the, from the COVID-19 context, then, uh, uh, it can mandate, for example, any order that would promote the health of the workforce. So eating vegetables, going for a walk. I know these are very but, different but, but than would, the... But
2: wouldn't they have to show that that improved improve the economy and efficiency of, of government um, contracting in some sort of way that was beyond negligible, sort of statistically and really looking at data? Would, would there not be a requirement there
4: before the executive could do that? The government's, argu- know, but, the government's argument here is that anything in the president's judgment that he considers necessary to promote e- economy and efficiency is fair game, so that would include anything that would promote the health of the workforce, as a district court noted, as a Sixth Circuit noted, as the Eleventh Circuit noted. It can go further than that. It can go to things like uh, lunchtime breaks, how many hours people are at lunch. It could go to things like how many, how, how, uh, personal cell phone use in the workplace. That's the problem with the government's argument here. They are interpreting the Procurement Act as a directive to allow the president to run a contractor's workplace in lieu of running how the government contracts. And just to kind of bolster that, I'll point out, that's the example that they used. The OMB November determination, the examples they use in their brief, is not an example of a of a of a private company entering into a contract and requiring the counterparty to have a vaccine mandate in place. What they point to is a company dictating to its own workforce that they need to have a vaccine mandate in place. So what the government do you, is...
2: Do you, do you agree with opposing counsel that um, that your position would in effect mean that the previous executive orders that have come before courts of appeals and maybe a district court, whether it deals with anti-discrimination or wage and hour, labor issues, is it your position that those, if they were be in
4: front of us today, those would go down as well with this as 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 you are arguing this one should? I don't I don't think that necessarily follows. I think this is well, this why is not. Well, this is a context in which, uh, going again to the 6th and 11th Circuits, we're dealing with the context where the major questions doctrine applies. So there needs to be a clear textual statement in the Act itself pointing to or allowing for this type of wide-ranging, broad public health order. The Sixth Circuit distinguished all those cases. I think it's a very good principle distinction by pointing out that all the other past executive orders do have an anchor in the workplace. So they deal with labor management, uh, for example. I think that's the ordinary practice of hiring, firing, and management of labor is how the Kentucky v. Biden court, the Sixth Circuit, addressed it. That would be consistent with the cons, uh, AFL-CIO v. Cons court analysis of what the Procurement Act deals with, which is price, quality, suitability, and availability of goods and services. This is a vaccine mandate, unlike all those other cases. And as the 11th Circuit... You, noted,
2: said, you said the hiring and firing, and I'm, and I'm sorry, I'm just am really trying to get a distinction here, because what if they said you can only hire people who have been vaccinated?
4: Well, I think uh, dealing with the, the government in that context is, I mean, that's still sneaking in a public health order into the Procurement Act, right? Whether or not we're dealing, we're, the, the, there's no principal limit to the idea that the president can mandate the economic and efficient running of a workplace just because the business does, uh, is, doing, is contracting with the federal government. And this is a major questions doctrine. That, I think, is a complete answer to the concern about the other prior orders. A COVID-19 vaccine mandate is different in kind, and this is what the 11th Circuit noted uh, and the Supreme Court noted in the OSHA vaccine mandate case. A COVID-19 vaccine mandate is not an everyday exercise of federal power. What it is is something different. It's not something anchored to the workplace. It's something that can't be undone at the end of the day. So, kind of from a practical standpoint, looking at I think the, the the West Virginia analytical framework for the major questions doctrine, which the Supreme Court recently issued, as well as analogizing this or looking to the facts of the OSHA vaccine mandate case, we're dealing with a situation where all the other exercises of the procurement Act power dealt with things that happened in the in the in the workplace, dealt with things that were at least had some much more colorable nexus. to to the existence of a federal contract, how the government entered into that contract. This, on the other hand, turns the existence of a, a, um, this, on the other hand, requires um, workers to, uh, um, contractors, pardon me, to impose a public health mandate on those who are, who are working for it. This is not a power that's been used before. And in fact, I think the, my friend on the other side uh, conceded that. She said there's never been a public health order in the district court. They actually stipulated to the fact that there's never been, been a vaccine mandate. Um, I know, you know, going again to the fact that there are other communicable diseases, I think, Judge Smith, you may have asked this question, uh, there's th- that cause worker absenteeism, seasonal flu, for example, that could be addressed by a vaccine mandate, I think that absence actually is significant here. It's a reason why the uh, um, why the major questions doctrine should apply under that kind of West Virginia rubric. Looking at the... council
2: could you help me understand um, what your view of the Procurement Act is in terms... Can you give me some examples going forward if we were to rule in your favor? What is the scope and how do we determine the scope of the executive power under the Procurement Act. What does it look like going forward, in your view?
4: Well, it's just a textual analysis. The policies and directives necessary to um, to, to carry out this subtitle, as the 11th Circuit noted. And that's not an insignificant power. The Procurement Act covers over a hundred different sections of the United States Code. Federal contracting is not going to collapse just because the president can't mandate a vaccine for everyone who may be working with a company who is doing. Can, can you give me some examples? I, as I know, I, give me some examples going forward.
2: What is within the executive power?
4: Well, I think uh, an example would be if. Um, I think a good example would be if someone is doing business in uh, or wants to contract for a sensitive national security concern, the president could issue a policy and directive saying that the Department of Defense has to require them to have up-to-date computer uh, security systems. And the 11th Circuit, I think it's it's... It's a little tricky on this point because that power is really done, I think, on a case-by-case and project-by-project basis. And there's there's examples of how that would look in terms of litigation from the Third Circuit and the Fourth Circuit in the Associated Contractors case and the Liberty Mutual case. These cases deal with the anti-discrimination orders. We're touching a little bit on that close nexus analysis. In both cases, there was the courts noted in the specific application, of the anti-discrimination orders in that context. The Third Circuit noted in associated contractors that the order itself was directed at construction contracts and that the construction contracts had a unique, the anti-discrimination provision there had a unique link to federal contracting because there was evidence in the record that it would reduce cost for the federal government. The Fourth Circuit, by contrast, in the in the Liberty Mutual case, noted that such record evidence was non-existent. Uh, uh, so. In that case, there's there's a much closer, there's a much closer uh, kind of project by project or category of contracting, category of contracting analysis to 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 the procurement act order. That would be consistent, I think, with how, for example, forty one U.S.C. thirty three oh six deals with solicitation bids, which looks kind of on a a, uh, allows some flexibility to agencies to draft the solicitation in order to meet the uh, the mission of the agency in seeking out that contract. And again, I think at the end of the day, we're, we're litigating this. That's a nexus analysis, but we're litigating both within the shadow of the government's claim of power here, which is that the president can mandate anything he believes would promote efficiency and economy in the workplace of a, of a contractor employer. And it has to be in this case, I I would point out, going to the COVID vaccine, uh, COVID context, the government is expressly asking for this court's deference. Because the government has conceded in, in this court that the vaccines do not prevent transmission. And in fact, they stipulated in the district court, going back to the early days of this litigation, that they didn't know that the vaccine prevented transmission. Yet preventing transmission was a basis of the OMB's determination here. So this is a this is truly an unlimited claim of power by the government. Whether you look at it how they present the standard, which is deference to the president's economy and efficiency judgment, or and whether how and looking at the facts in this case here, which the facts in the record do not support the actual economy and efficiency link that the government says exists.
3: Counsel, the government also argues that the scope of the injunction is too broad. Uh, why shouldn't this injunction be limited? Uh, to the states that are parties to the litigation and in their role as federal contractors.
4: So on, on that front, I think the the answer is the district court's parents' patriae analysis ignored the fact that the states all have a quasi sovereign interest in the in the health and economic well being of their citizens. The Sixth Circuit Kentucky case discusses this in some depth, I think, in some depth, very thoroughly and persuasively. That the the public health interest in and of itself gives all the states both standing and an injury here because a contractor mandate is uh, a, an intrusion into that fact, which circles back again, kind of to that common sense major question. But here, the
3: district court uh, found that the uh, there was no parents' patriarchy standing.
4: Right, and, and we contest that that fact based on okay, that. So we would have to. Well, I
3: th- disagree with that. Well, I did, think did the, you cross appeal the the finding on standing?
4: We did not because the district court's injunction, uh, uh, the district court didn't hold no state had standing. What the district court said is there's at least one state with standing so it could review it. And then it said there was no parents' patria interest involved. The injunction currently covers all 10 states, so we couldn't cross-appeal that. That was, the, that was our request from the district court so that we weren't injured by this order at all. We're defending that this is a defense on an alternative basis of the district court's injunction. So we, in this case, we have the parents-patriarch interest. I also think there's a practical concern here. This is, I think, reflected in the 11th Circuit's decision, uh, the idea that uh, the states could be disadvantaged in their role as contractors if there wasn't a wide-ranging kind of prohibition in the injunction. The states, the federal government, could slip in the contractor mandate without really doing so by placing a lot of weight on it if those states were contracting against someone with a vaccine mandate. But I think the uh, the, the parents' patriot interest. I think that's a good good jump off again to t- touch on. I think the major questions doctrine in, in this context. The Sixth Circuit noted, and, and the public health is a area traditionally left with the states. That's a that's again kind of another reason why the major questions doctrine should apply in West Virginia v. EPA. Uh, I think it's a it's another good argument for pointing out that. Um, because public health is traditionally left with the states, this is not something that the federal government typically does. The federal government typically does not dictate public health orders to those who do business with the, uh, with the, um, uh, with the government in Council, their So Isn't there
3: some tension in this case between the major questions doctrine and its application on the one hand and the close nexus to the purpose on the
4: other hand? I think if you, if the, I think in this case there's not necessarily that tension because in this case you do have the government saying because this promotes because the COVID vaccine mandate promotes public health and we can issue any public health order that improves the health of the workforce. You don't have that tension. This order in particular is clearly a major question. Well, I'm just case.
3: wondering if the close nexus to the purpose is the proper uh, analysis.
4: Even if that is a proper analysis, I would go back to. Uh, pointing out that the federal government doesn't doesn't engage in that analysis. If you look at the seminal cases that deal with that, Con uh, AFLC uh, so AFLC Con Associated Contractors, Liberty Mutual, there's a there's a, the those are, those follow that category by category and project by project kind of analysis that we ha- that the Eleventh Circuit approved applying the major questions doctrine and looking at the text of the law. This is why I say there's overlap in this case between the two tests. They lead to the same place. A major questions doctrine, I think puts a thumb on the scale, no matter what analysis you use, given the scope of authority that the government government claims. One quick note on, I think, history. The government, beyond just pointing out that they've never stipulated, to, a, uh, they've never issued a public health order in the history of the Procurement Act, not only cuts against it, the government places a lot of weight on a number of other cases and executive orders, none of which, and the 11th Circuit and 6th Circuit deal with this, I think, very thoroughly none of which actually say that the president has the ability to kind of run, to issue public health orders, to tell employees what they can do uh, in order, employers what their employees must do in order to promote the public health. Thank They've you. always been restrained to that. Thank purpose. you, Mr. sell Thank you.
1: Please, the court. Your Honor, I'd like to begin by discussing the major questions doctrine. Uh, the, there are two primary reasons why that doctrine has no application here. The first is that, as cases like West Virginia versus EPA pointed out, that doctrine really applies if there's some sort of vague ancillary or, as that case called it, backwater provision of a statute that's never before been used in a way that has a broad uh, delegation of authority. And that's just not uh, the case that we have here. As I mentioned in my opening, this section of the statute has been used for seven decades by presidents and upheld by Court of Appeals in uh, in using the statute to prescribe policies and directives that improve the economy and efficiency of the federal contracting system. The fact that it's never been used in this precise way before uh, doesn't change the matter. I think the CMS case from the Supreme Court dealing with a vaccine mandate for staff of Medicare and Medicaid facilities is actually quite helpful on this point. Uh, There, the court noted that the provision at issue had been used in in broad ways before, um, and the court said it doesn't matter that it's never been used in this precise way because we've never had a pandemic of this scale or scope before, with these kinds of significant effects, in this case, on the federal contracting apparatus. I would also just note that the ways that this power was used previously are not uh, ways that would have escaped Congress's notice. Uh, It used, the presidents had used the powers to address some of the most sort of politically charged and controversial issues of the day, whether it was anti-discrimination in the nineteen fifties and sixties, inflation in the seventies, immigration in the two thousands. So I think all of those are reasons why major questions doctrine doesn't apply here. A second sort of distinction with some of the cases that um, my opposing counsel cited is that this is an exercise of, of spending power. This is not a you know direct regulation of private businesses in the way that the OSHA mandate that was before the Supreme Court earlier this term was, Uh, this is the President directing his agencies about how they use their purchasing power to enter into voluntary arms length transactions with businesses. Uh, and that's important in thinking through the scope of the delegation that, that Congress gave the president because Congress often speaks in broad strokes when it's delegating its spending power. I mean, we see lump sum appro- appropriation bills all the time. Um, and so that difference in, in the font of authority and the exercise of authority here is also key for, for concluding that the major questions doctrine doesn't apply. I also want to address the point about uh, there not being any limit to our position. As I think the the colloquy with Judge Kelly revealed, this executive order is very different from one that would just address some sort of latent general health interest in the contractor workforce. This executive order uh, was issued in the context of a -a once-in-a-century pandemic that, as Judge Kelly noted, not only uh, had serious effects in terms of making people seriously ill, hospitalizing, and in many cases, killing people. Uh, But it also meant that you had to oftentimes quarantine simply by virtue of being exposed to COVID-19. And that situation is very different from a sort of general interest in the health of the contractor workforce. On the textual point, um, I think that my opposing counsel noted that The purpose statement in section 101 informs the second sentence of the grant of authority in section 121, but it's not clear why if it informs the second sentence, it can't also inform the first sentence. And indeed, that's the way that courts have interpreted it for decades. Also, my opposing counsel suggested that somehow this, this authority, the president needs to exercise this authority in sort of a project by project or agency specific way. I think that's just entirely inconsistent with the entire reason for being for the Procurement Act, which was to centralize management of the procurement system and to give the president a direct and active role in supervising this system. So I would just say that the text, the decades-long tradition among past presidents, courts of appeals, all of which has been reenacted. Uh, all of which Congress has been aware of and reenacted the statute, uh, informed that this was an appropriate exercise of the president's authority, and we ask that this court vacate the injunction. Okay. Thank you, Your Honors.
0: Thank you, Smoan. Thank you also, Mr. The Court appreciates both counsel's participation in argument before the court this morning. I uh, will take the case under advisement.